0: Well, today we're coming to the next part of our series, our Advent series through John chapter one. And today we come to verse 14 of John chapter one, the word made flesh. It's one of the greatest texts in all of scripture, but we're only not gonna cover just chapter four or uh, verse 14, we're gonna go all the way to 18. So if you would stand in honor of God's word, we honor God's word here, that's why we stand. And I'll read out our passage. It's John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is God's word. You may sit down and let's pray together as we seek to understand his word. Father, we are so in awe of your plan for human history and your plan for us. We ask now that you would open our eyes to better understand what you have done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. We need your help, Holy Spirit, so we ask you you to come in power, reveal yourself to us. We pray that in Christ's name, amen. Well, I wonder when was the last time you were looking for something, maybe looking extensively for something, but you realized it was right there with you all along. For me, this has happened a number of times with sunglasses. (laughs) I've been looking around, everywhere for sunglasses, and all of a sudden I realize, oh, they're, they're right there on my head. It's happened to me with keys as well. Hopefully I'm not the only one that these things have happened to, but I'm looking around for keys and all of a sudden I see, oh, my key is in my pocket. It happens. Well, when it comes to a relationship with God, I wonder if today you feel that he is distant from you. Maybe you're looking all over for him, but he seems to be far away. He seems to be unconcerned about your life. It seems like he doesn't care. Well, today's passage has the power to dispel those feelings and replace them with the reality of God's word. And if you're not feeling distant from God today, that's fine. This passage will encourage you. It will hopefully strengthen your faith as you think about the week ahead. Because what we find in this passage of Scripture is that no matter what it seems, no matter what we feel at the moment, God is near. He has come near, and He does care. If you were here last week, you'll remember that John wrote this gospel for two reasons. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. And if you've been here the last few weeks, you've realized that John starts his gospel rather abstractly, with abstract language. He says, the word became flesh. He describes this word, this eternal word that was in the beginning with God, that was himself God, that through whom all things were created. He describes this word in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1. Then in verse 4, he shifts his description to the light or the true light this light who gives light to everyone, that gives the right for people to be called children of God. And now in our text today, he's coming back to this description of the Word. The Word became flesh among us. So it is abstract language, but what John is doing is he's describing the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very clear what he's doing. So the big picture for us this morning, the core message for us, if you will, the, the main sentence, if you only want to listen to a little bit of this message, I hope you listen the whole time, is this, Jesus became a man so that we might receive grace upon grace. Jesus became a man so that we might receive grace upon grace. And in this text, in John 1, 14 to 18, we see three implications of that main point, that Jesus became a man that we might receive grace upon grace. Three implications. First, we we must marvel at the wonder of the incarnation. The first part of verse 14 is so amazing, we're just going to have its own point just in that little phrase right there. And then second, we need to examine the testimony of those who saw Jesus. We see that in the rest of verse 14 through verse 15. And then third, we need to receive the gifts that Jesus gives. We see that in verses 16 to 18. So let's first consider why we should marvel at the wonder of the Incarnation. Because if you've read the Bible, if you've been around church for any length of time, when we get to verse 14 of John chapter 1, it should jump off the page for us. Let me read it again. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So if we're going to marvel at this reality, we first need to better understand it as best we can. So let's look at each part of this phrase, the two parts of this phrase, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Let's start with the word became flesh. Have you ever wondered where the word incarnation comes from? We we say this all the time, incarnation. If you've been around church, you're just used to it. But if you're new to church, you're like, "What, what are you talking about? Well, incarnation comes from this Latin word, incarnare, which means to make flesh. It's, it's right here in this passage, God made flesh, the, the Word made flesh. And it's so important to Christianity that without the incarnation, there is no Christmas. There, there's no Advent celebration. Without the incarnation, we are not here on a Sunday morning worshiping God. Without the incarnation, we have no hope in this world, ultimate hope in this world. So we must rejoice at the Incarnation, that it is true that it really did happen. Well, what was it that happened in the Incarnation? The text says the Word became flesh. What John is saying is that the Eternal Word, this One who is the creator of the world, the One who is the light of the world, in whom was life. In other words, the infinite, the all-knowing, the all-wise, the all-powerful God, This one, he became flesh. God became a man. And he did so at a specific point of history, at the perfect point of history. God, as we talked about last week, has been planning his plan and carrying out his plan for the world throughout all of human history and at the perfect time where Paul says in Galatians 4.4, at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Those are amazing words. They're they're breathtaking words. It's it's mind-blowing. To to fully appreciate this truth, we we need to be clear about what this means and what this does not mean. The word became flesh means God became a man. What it does not mean is that the word merely seemed to be a man. That would be the ancient heresy called docetism. No, the word really did become a full flesh and blood man, born as a baby, and his name was Jesus. It also does not mean that the word gave up any of his qualities as God. That would be the more modern kenosis theory, another heresy. No, the word, Jesus, was still fully God, and by becoming flesh, he became fully man. Fully God and fully man. It's really important that we get this straight. The Latin church father, Gregory the Great, writing in the 6th century, put it like this. The word was made flesh not by losing what he was, but by taking what he was not. He didn't cease to become God, but he did put on humanity. The word became flesh. Then we come to the next phrase, of this all-important part of the verse in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. A more literal way to translate this word dwelt would be that he became flesh and tabernacled among us, that he pitched his tent among us. And what John is doing here is he's hearkening us back to the Old Testament. He's hearkening us back. He's calling us back. And he's saying, remember when God dwelt with man in the tabernacle? Well, that's what the word is doing. He came and dwelt. He tabernacled with us in that same way. You see, God's intent has always been to dwell with his people. If you think back in Genesis 1 and 2, God created Adam and Eve and he was dwelling with them. There was fellowship, but then they sinned and they were cast out of the garden. Then he came to his people in the tabernacle, in the temple of meeting, or the tent of meeting in the temple, but there were regulations. There there was difficulty in meeting with God because of our sinfulness and his holiness. And now in this passage, we see that God sent Jesus to dwell with us, to break down those barriers of fellowship with him. And then as we look ahead to the end of history in Revelation 21, what does it say? But that the dwelling place of God is with man. This is God's plan for all of history. And once again, without hindrance, we will be with the Lord without any kind of hindrance of sin. But that was only made possible by Jesus coming to earth as a man. But the question remains, why would God choose this way? Why would he send his son, his only son, to earth to dwell with us? So isn't isn't there another way? Well, he did it because the world was in an impossible situation. Alienated from him. Unable to to rescue themselves, unable to have fellowship with a holy God. He did it because he so loved the world. He did it because of love. Think of John 3.16. He did it because there was no other way to save sinners like us. And he did it to glorify his name. This was the way that we would see his character and his love and his compassion. He did it to bring glory to his name. Well, Jesus came to earth. As he came to earth, it was the only way to save those within the world that he loved. So Hebrews 2.17 sums it up well when it says this. Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, friends, Jesus had to become a man. When he decided he wanted to save some within the world, he had to become a man, and fully man, so that he would be an acceptable sacrifice to God for us, one that can turn God's wrath against us into favor, That's what that big word in Hebrews means, propitiation, turning a sacrifice that turns God's wrath against us into favor. He had to become a man so that he might be our representative, humanity's representative. So just as the first man, Adam, was a representative of the whole human race and he failed, Jesus became a man as a representative of the human race and he succeeded. He succeeded on every law, A perfect life, a sinless life, so that his perfect righteousness, his perfect record could be ours. He had to become a man to fully represent us as a man before God. But Jesus had to be fully God because only someone who is God could bear God's wrath against all the sin that was done throughout the world for all time, for those that he was coming to save. So on that cross, there was no other way but on that cross that Jesus would bear our sins. And so he needed to be the one mediator between God and man that First Timothy 2 talks about. There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's fully God and he's fully man. No one else could do it, only Jesus Christ. That's why there's not many ways to God. There's not many ways that we can find ourselves to God because only one person has borne that sacrifice. Only one person has taken God's wrath. Only one person has been perfect in all of human history that can give us his record and that is the Lord Jesus. So Jesus had to be, become a man, and Jesus had to be fully God. Another reason he had to be God is because we know that salvation comes from the Lord. It's not going to come from a man. It comes from the Lord. So you may be wondering that question I asked earlier. Why didn't God just save people without going through all that? Couldn't he have set it up in a way where he just kind of like said, hey, your sin doesn't matter? The answer is no. Because he is holy, and he is infinitely holy, and he is just. He is infinitely just. He is perfectly just, and justice demands payment for sin. And although we may not take sin seriously at times, God surely does. Sometimes we think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's just like a little white lie. Or God, he's not really paying attention when I'm looking at that thing on the computer. That's not really that big of a deal. Well, if you want to know how serious God takes sin, just look at what he had to do to remedy the problem of sin. He had to send his very own son. He is very serious about sin. His very own son was the only representative. He is the only sacrifice on your behalf that you could accept so that your sins could be forgiven. And he did it because he loves you. He loves us. Friends, forgiveness is costly. Don't be deceived. Forgiveness is not easy. It is costly. But Jesus has paid that ultimate price. But to receive this forgiveness, you you must believe in the one who has made that sacrifice. The sacrifice is done. He has, it is finished. We must believe. We must confess our sins and surrender our life to him. So I wonder if you have done that today. Have you received his grace? Have you received this mercy? Have you trusted in this one? Many of us here have done that, and we have the joy of the Lord as a result. And so this season, when you see manger scenes this month, I want to give you a challenge. Those big blow-up nativities, or just the ones in your house, whatever whatever you see around, when you see that baby Jesus, remember afresh that that little cute baby Jesus was sent into the world because of your sin. That baby Jesus sacrificed an unthinkable sacrifice for you, that you might live. It's really good to celebrate Christmas. Christians have more reason than anybody to celebrate Christmas. Because God became man, he did this for us, and that's the reason we celebrate. So when you're wondering, maybe later today, maybe this week, if you're wondering, does God really care about me? Does he really care about my life, the trial that I'm going through, this physical issue that I have, the relational issues, your current situation? Remember that Jesus became a man. That is his answer, how could God show you in any clear way that he loves you, that he wants a relationship with you, that he cares about every detail of your life? He couldn't do anything more than send his very son to you. And if he gave us his son, how will he not, scripture says, give us all things? He's not far off. The incarnation shows that he has done everything to abolish the barriers to coming to him. So that's our first point in this text. We're still in the first part. Don't worry, we'll go faster in the second two parts. But the first part, let us marvel in the incarnation when the word was made flesh. Well, for some of us, marveling at the incarnation isn't quite so easy. We, we've been around church for a while. We've heard some of these stories. And some of us are like Thomas the Apostle and we really have doubts about whether all this is really true. Well, the next section of our text helps us in that regard, and we're confronted with eyewitnesses to Jesus. And this leads us to the second point, which is to examine the testimony of those who saw Jesus. You know, we often like stories that embellish someone to make them seem greater than they are. I was thinking about this in uh, Paul Bunyan, Came to mind, you know. If you if you know the story of Paul Bunyan, he probably wasn't a real person. He was a combination of two loggers back in the eighteen hundreds, and these stories started to come up about Paul Bunyan. And uh, w- however they started, they got to an extreme point, to the point now where some of the st- stories about Paul Bunyan is that he's now seven feet tall, and that he's got strides that are seven feet long, that somehow he created Lake Superior. Don't, don't know how that happened. That he's so quick that when he blows out a candle, he can get in bed before the light goes out. It's, it's amazing. It's a, it's a, well, it's a legend. It's false, okay? Things that have clearly been embellished over time. But how do we know that Jesus coming to earth isn't like that? Isn't like Paul Bunyan, that, that legend. How is it not just the result of stories being embellished and passed down over time? In other words, why can we trust the gospel accounts? Well, there's many reasons, but one is because we have eyewitness accounts of the people who saw Jesus in real time, who lived with him on earth. And in the next verses, we have the recorded witnesses of the Johns. We got John the Apostle and John the Baptist, the two Johns. So first, John the Apostle. He was one of those eyewitnesses. So he says in the second half of verse 14, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, John was not writing an account of something out there that he had heard about. John was writing about not something, but someone that he knew, that he saw and touched and ate with and talked with, and who was a mentor to him and a rabbi and a friend John and his fellow apostles, those who followed Jesus and they saw what he did, they had a front row to see it all. And just as God's people in the Old Testament saw the glory of the Lord descend upon the tabernacle, if you remember that in the Old Testament, John here is saying that they saw Jesus' glory when he tabernacled among us, among John and the other apostles. So what was that glory that he spoke about? What was this glory that they saw? It was Jesus' entire life. The way he talked with people, the compassion that he had on the widow. It was the miracles that he performed. It is the way that he talked to the Pharisees. John says that if everything Jesus did were to be written down, he says this at the end of his gospel, even the whole worth. The whole world couldn't contain the books that would be written. Jesus did incredible things throughout his life. But John pared it down in this short gospel in a way just so that we might believe. But don't be deceived. He, Jesus did far more than even was recorded. So this glory, or you could say the weight, the word glory comes from the Hebrew word weight or the honor of Jesus. His glory was unique. He wasn't like anyone else. John says that it was the glory as of the only Son from the Father, meaning Jesus was different than everyone else. He was one of a kind. He was the one and only Son. This glory from Jesus is said in verse 14 to be full of grace and truth. So John here is almost certainly pointing us back once again to the Old Testament, He's pointing us back to Exodus 33. If you don't remember Exodus 33, it's fine. I wouldn't have remembered if I hadn't studied it this week either. But there in verse 18 of Exodus 33, Moses asked God, Please show me your glory. And you may remember the scene. God says, Actually, I can't show you, paraphrase, I can't show you my full glory or else you'll be incinerated, you'll, you'll not live. But this is what I'll do. I'll hold my hand and I'll pass by. And as I pass by, you can look at me uh, in the back. And so that's what he does on the mountain in Exodus 34. And God reveals himself by saying these words. He says, the Lord, the Lord, uh, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And many scholars believe, and I agree with them, that these two self-described Hebrew words, how how God describes himself back in Exodus 34, steadfast love and faithfulness, those two words are repeated here in John chapter 1 and translated into the Greek as grace and truth. So what does this mean? It means that John is saying, just like Moses saw the glory of the Lord at the top of the mountain... It was unlike any human being had ever seen. So also did he and the other eyewitnesses see God's glory in the person and work of Jesus. He's saying this is God incarnate. So that's the testimony of John and and those who saw Jesus. Then we get the testimony of the other John, John the Baptist in verse 15. We talked about him a lot last week. We're going to talk about him next week. He's, He's... In John chapter 1 quite a bit. So we talk about him. But it says this, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. If you just read through this text, it just doesn't seem like this really fits. (laughs) It's kind of like, okay, John, why'd you go from verse 14 to 15, then 16? It seems like you should have done verse 14 and then 16. Why'd you even put this in about John the Baptist. Well, I think John the Apostle, he's doing a number of things. We can't get into all the things he's doing here. But one main reason is to show that John the Baptist, who is at this time quite well known, he was quite well respected, to the point that some people were saying, is this the Christ? You know, people from Jerusalem said, hey, are are you the Christ? So he was uh, the greatest man born among women, as Jesus said but it's to show that John the Baptist was unmistakable in the fact that the word, Jesus Christ, ranked well ahead of him. There was was no debate on who was greater here. You know, when our kids were young, they really couldn't get the concept that Sarah was older than me by like three months because I was taller than Sarah. And so it was like, well, anyone who is taller must be older. So how is dad younger than mom? Because he's taller. And and for some, it, it took a couple years to really like get that. Like, okay, dad is actually younger than mom. Well, similarly, at that time, the older were ranked higher than the younger. If you were older, you were ranked higher than the younger. But here, John the Baptist, he's trying to establish that Jesus was in fact older. He, in fact, did rank higher than him because he was the eternal word of God. So even though Jesus technically was born after John, he ranked before him because he was before him, he says. That is, he always existed. And he was far greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist knew it. Well, friends, John the Baptist's testimony didn't end in the first century. He is still crying out. He's crying out as we read John chapter 1. He's pointing us to Jesus. He is saying, this is the one. This Jesus, he is the word. He is the light. He is the only way to be saved. He is the one. And John the apostle and all those who saw Jesus in his ministry are crying out to us. They're saying, we have seen his glory. We have been with him. He is the one And the accounts of these eyewitnesses, they matter. They give even more evidence to what John said earlier is true, that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. And the question for us this morning is, do you believe it? Do you believe? And if so, are you living like you do believe it? Or is it just some set of facts that you've affirmed? Because as we talked about last week, the reality is, is that not everyone sees the glory of Jesus. Some are blinded by the light, by Satan. Some are blinded by, because of their sin. And to them, Jesus' glory is veiled. And so if that is true for you this morning, if you think about Jesus, if, as we're going through this text, you're like, well, what's the big deal about Jesus. That means his glory is veiled from you maybe it's completely veiled you can't understand it all or maybe it's been veiled because of sin in your life so if you can't see the glory of jesus why he's the most important person in the world why the most important person the world has ever known then ask jesus today to open your spiritual eyes for the first time or to open them afresh that this christmas season you might see jesus for who he is and we can pray for others to see the evidence and believe. Well, Jesus became a man to give us grace upon grace. So consequently, we must marvel at the incarnation. We must examine the witnesses of those who were with Jesus. And now we come to the last section of the passage. And it calls us to receive the gifts that Jesus gives. Starting in verse 16. So it says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Isn't that a wonderful verse? We have received grace upon grace from the Lord Jesus. It shows us that in his very being, Jesus is full of grace. It's unending grace. It's not like if he gives some grace over here, he doesn't have grace over here. It is unending grace. So when Jesus came to earth a new order arrived. It was a new and better covenant that was established. That's what verse 17 is getting at. So let me read that. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now in one sense, there was grace in the law. It was gracious that God gave his people commands. He gave them expectations. He showed them who he was and what he demanded of them. That was gracious. Other nations didn't have that. So there was grace in the law, but in another sense, the law could not bring life. It only brought condemnation and death since none could fulfill it on their own. So if you remember what Paul said in Galatians 3, Verse 21, he says, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Righteousness cannot come by the law. This is what he's saying. The law given by Moses, while there was some grace there, it brought death. But through Jesus came grace and truth. You ever thought about that Jesus doesn't just point us to the truth, but that he is, in fact, truth, incarnate, He is the one who defines truth. He says, I am the way, in John 14, 6, the truth and the life. Jesus himself is truth, and he he embodies grace. Well, what is the difference between the law that came through Moses and grace that came through Jesus? The law says, do this. Grace says, it's already done. The law says, you are guilty. Grace says, you are forgiven. The law says, you are dead. And grace says, I will give you life. Jesus fulfilled all the demands of the law perfectly. And he died for us so that we could receive grace upon grace. In Romans ten four, Paul puts it like this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We don't have to look further than Christ to be justified before a holy God. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. So the question again comes, are you trusting in Christ, in Christ alone for your righteousness, for your standing before God? Or are you somehow banking on your own effort? The call here is to trust in Jesus and receive his grace upon grace. So Jesus gave us grace. He also gave us a vision of God. Look at verse 18, the final verse of our text. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. You see, in the Old Testament, you may be thinking, well, didn't some people kind of see God? It seemed like they saw God. So what is this saying? Well, some people, like Moses, as we talked about earlier, received glimpses of the glory of God, but they couldn't see him in his fullness, in his full glory. They would not be able to uh, take it or stand it. They would be essentially uh, incinerated. But here, God says that Jesus whom he, interestingly, he calls the only God, if you notice that, some, some manuscripts say the only son, but the best say he's calling him the only God, Jesus. He has made God known. And this word to make known in Greek is where we get the word exegete or exegesis. It's to explain or to make known. As as your pastor, that's what I'm trying to do every single week, is trying to look at God's word and explain it to you and make it known and tell you what it says. So John is saying that Jesus exegetes God the Father. He makes him known, he explains him, he shows us what he's like, he gives us an understanding of God the Father. Why can Jesus do this? What authority does he have? Well, he is the one and only son, and he is, John says, at the father's side. Literally, he's in the father's bosom, which at that time describes the ultimate intimacy. It's like a dining position. You're, you're in someone's bosom. F.F. F. Bruce is a scholar, and he wisely said, Only one who fully knows the father can make him fully known. So, friends, this means that if you want to know what God is like, you don't need to look any further than Jesus. Jesus exegetes the Father. He makes him known. That's why it's absurd to think, well, yeah, I believe in a God, but I don't believe in Jesus. Here, here God is showing us, if you want to know what I'm like, you need to trust in my son. My son shows me who who I am. Jesus himself affirms this truth later in John in chapter 14, verse nine, when he says to Philip, Philip, don't you know, don't you yet know me? (laughs) Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So as we dwell on this, I want us to think about just the privileged time of history that we live in right now. Jesus has come. He has given us grace upon grace. First and foremost, through himself, by giving us himself. And he has shown us what God is like. You know, at Christmas, sometimes we need to remind children to say thank you for gifts, especially if it's one they don't particularly like. But oh, how often we are like that with God. He has given us so many gifts. He has given us grace upon grace. And so today, this week, this Christmas season, will you spend time thanking God? Jesus, will you say thank you for what he has done and the gifts he has so freely given to us? Well, this passage is one of the most encouraging in the entire Bible, if we let it encourage us. It tells us that Jesus became a man so that you might receive grace upon grace. And so I'll leave you with the question, have you received grace? this grace that he offers to you. Have you received that grace today? You may know a lot about Jesus, but have you received that grace? Have you trusted in him? If you have, think of ways that you can be grateful and thank him this week. And think of ways that you could share this grace with others this Christmas season. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a gift you have given us in the Lord Jesus. The word has become flesh. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And just as John and his friends saw your glory, Lord Jesus, we want to see your glory. We want to worship you as you deserve. We want to give you the honor and praise that are due your name. And so I pray that you would help us to do that as we meditate on your word and as we sing uh, in gratefulness to you. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.